With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I am so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the eighth episode of my show. I'm really excited to have this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, highlight current issues that really need to be discussed more to help reduce breaches and security incidents, and also to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please check out my websites, privacyprofessor.org, symbus360.com, and privacyguidance.com. Now, today I'm going to discuss a really important aspect of an increasing activity that I know you're hearing about more often, and that is increasingly involving larger amounts of personal data. So what are these topics? Well, they are privacy breaches and security incidents. Now, you might have heard Yahoo has had the largest breach in history to date, well, at least that is known or has been reported, over 3 billion, and that's billion with a B, of their email accounts that we know of so far were breached. The accounts were current accounts and also those from 2013. So just think about all of that detailed information that you have just within your email profiles. Then think about what could be in the email messages themselves if the cyber crooks who got that information about those email accounts, if they use that to then go into your accounts and subsequently got data from within the messages themselves, you know, what do you talk about in email? Some of it could be very sensitive. Some of it could be very damaging if it was misused. Now, here's another breach example. Uber concealed a hack that affected 57 million customers and drivers worldwide and 2.7 million users just in the UK alone. In this hack, there were Uber names and email addresses and mobile phone numbers of the customers that were exposed. And of those 57 million that were impacted, 600,000 of their drivers had their names and their license details compromised. So that's some pretty sensitive stuff as well. Security incidents are continuing to increase, and the numbers of personal data privacy breaches are getting bigger all the time. I found some stats 
that came from a variety of research studies for breaches that occurred in 2017. I wanted to share some of them with you. I found them pretty amazing myself. Identity theft occurred in at least 59% of the breaches that we know about in 2017. 59%. Over the past few years, identity theft has been and continues to be one of the most common types of privacy breach harms that occur worldwide. Now, after identity theft harms, 17.8% of the harms from those breaches were from financial access to and then subsequent malicious use of the data within the individual's accounts. And then 9.6% of the harms were for the personal account access for a variety of subsequent malicious use. Also, imagine this. In 59.3% of breaches, the actual number of compromised personal data records that were were actually um, accessed was unknown. The organizations did not know how many total personal data records were breached. So how large could this number be? Knowing that many organizations either do not report breaches or they do not tell the full number impacted, I believe the numbers could easily more than double. And here's something else, and I think I find this really alarming. There were only 4.6% of security incidents where the personal data was encrypted. Now, with the ease for which encryption can be done and for how effective encryption is to keep unauthorized individuals from getting to people's data, this statistic is quite frankly very disturbing and it is unacceptable. Strong encryption should really be a de facto standard for every organization for protecting personal data and other sensitive data. Also, consider this. Research has found that every minute there are 7,297, I know that's a specific number, but 7,297 personal information records stolen or inappropriately accessed. So look on your wall at the clock on the wall. <laughs> How many personal information records have been stolen so far? Well, look at the minutes and multiply that by almost 7,300. I could list breaches and associated high-level details to you for really the next 72 hours straight, at least. No duplicates. They just keep piling up. So why do we keep having privacy breaches? Why are security incidents continuing to increase? Well, for a combination of a variety of reasons. While the basic concepts and domains of information security and privacy are still the same as they have been for the past 30 or so years, the types of technologies along with the types of and amounts of data have been dramatically increasing. And too many, most organizations do not implement information security and privacy programs that cover all of those important security and privacy domains to begin with. Now, let's consider just for a second what is possibly the most widely used and known 
Information Security Standard, ISO IEC 27001, and the accompanying ISO IEC 27002. Here's just quick background. This started out as BS 7799 Information Security Standard way back in 1995. And it was written by the United Kingdom government's Department of Trade and Industry. And it had several parts back then, around 12. Well, it has been updated throughout the years to address specific concepts in new types of information and technologies and more global sharing of data. But those original 12 domains are now in ISO 27001 version 2015 and the supporting 27002 document, a combined set of 114 recommended controls in 14 domains that have 35 control categories. That's a lot of good um, information to use to reference to help you to know how to control them. Now, under this standard, there is a a security incident management domain, and it has seven types of high-level controls. So organizations have a place to, to start with to get advice. But now there are also additional other separate ISO standards that go into more details with more practical device for that ISO 27001 security incident management domain. And there's also many other long-standing security standards that organizations can choose to use as well, such as NIST, SP-853, and a, several other NIST documents, the COBIT-5 security management framework, and others. So, so with all of these available security and privacy management standards and guidance documents, why aren't organizations better prepared to not only prevent security incidents and privacy breaches, but also better prepared to respond effectively to them. It will be useful to get some insights from a longtime expert in this area. I'm really happy to have an expert to chat with today in the area of incident and breach response in digital forensics. Dario Forte, CEO and founder of DFL Labs. Now, Dario has deep experience in this area. He has over 20 years of experience in incident response and cyber investigations. Dario started his career in incident response as a member of the Italian police. And in that role, he worked with the U.S. with some well-known government agencies, such as the uh, NASA. And he is also one of the co-editors of three ISO standards and has CFE, CISM, and CGEIT certifications. Dario also has an MBA from the University of Liverpool, plus he has executive education at Harvard Business School. Now, Dario founded DF Labs in 2003, and he's built DF Labs into being one of the foremost recognized global leaders in security automation and incident analysis technology. Dario's management team at DF Labs has helped to shape the cybersecurity industry in really many different ways, such as co-editing 
several industry standards such as ISO 27043, which is the information technology security techniques for instant investigation principles and processes, and ISO 30121, which is the information technology governance of digital forensic risk framework. You know, I mentioned earlier about how there are many supporting ISO documents to support what was at a high level in 27001. Well, there you go. Those two more of them that are great reference documents for organizations to use. The DF Lab's flagship product is Inkman, I-N-C-M-A-N. And it has been adopted by Fortune 500 and Global 2000 organizations worldwide. DF Labs has operations in Europe, North America, the Middle East, and Africa. For more information about Dario's business, visit dflabs.com. And you can also follow them on Twitter at DF Labs. So, Dario, welcome to my show, and I'm really so happy to discuss this very important topic with you. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm honored to be here today. Oh, well, you know, this is a big topic, right? And you've been doing so much in the field for this, but I'm curious to know a little bit more about how you got into this field and the industry before we dive into some specific incident, breach, and, uh, you know, response type of question. So how long have you been working in the information security field and did you decide to focus on digital forensics and incident and breach response from the very beginning or did something kind of push you in that direction? Uh, I started my journey in 1997, I think, and at that time I was uh, still in the law enforcement agency that I used to work with almost 20 years, uh, which is uh, middle way between uh, the American IRS and uh, the, um, the U.S. Secret Service, mm. just to give you an idea. And uh, at, uh, at that time, I was responsible for uh, lawful interceptions uh, uh, in uh, the organized uh, uh, crime unit. Then I moved into cybercrime, and uh, the last three years of my career, I was responsible for the cybercrime unit in northern Italy. And as you said, I was also working with many U.S. agencies, such as the DHHS and NASA. So basically what happened at that time is that uh, uh, in that particular period, we've been the uh, unit that uh, was able to, uh, I think we arrested 20 people. Uh, some of them were living in our mm. country uh, that were responsible of uh, stealing uh, confidential uh, uh, data from uh, NASA and U.S. Army. Uh, um, uh, FTP sites. It was a pretty big operation, and I was the responsible of the of the of the unit of it. So it was something that uh, uh, I didn't plan, to be honest. But uh, mm -hmm. in that particular period, there was uh, the, be the beginning of the curve of the you know the adoption and the usage. First of all, of uh, cryptography from uh, many, especially. Uh, many organized crime group that used to start exchanging uh, data and email uh, uh, using PGP. Everybody remember mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, there was an, uh, a, a growth of uh, uh, 
you know, pretty important hacking episodes. And uh, myself and few guys in my unit were the only ones that were able to understand what a computer was. And <laughs> I was almost, uh, I don't want to say that I was uh, uh, forced, but I w- I've been asked to investigate the, the computers that have been seized at that period. So uh, everything started from that, but then uh, it, it rapidly evolved. And then when I left the agency, uh, I moved into the private sector. I also spent uh, several years of my life in the academic sector as well. And I founded the, the, the company, the DLF Labs that you mentioned. So it's, well, a pretty, it's a pretty long story, yes. Yeah, but you know, I can really relate to that because a lot of folks in our industry, I think they get there not because they had a long time plan to do it, but they found things of interest and they followed their interest. And it sounds like that's what happened with you. But, you know, what motivated you to start your own business then? I mean, that's a big step, but, you know, uh, there's always a, a motivation. Maybe you saw uh, something was missing in the field that you, that you wanted to contribute to, or maybe you just wanted to address um, an issue that perhaps you saw that you could address better than what was currently being done? Uh in that particular period, uh, we are talking about the 2003, uh, the, uh, I don't want to say that it was almost sci-fi, but we were mm-hmm. almost there. So uh, law enforcement was not prepared uh, to uh, cover this growing uh, issue like it is probably now. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was mostly a motivation uh, dictated by the importance of the topic versus the, uh, you know, the fact that the private sector at that time had more budget than law enforcement in covering these kind of things. And the people who actually are involved in the field of cybersecurity are usually uh, they need to be, let's say, mentally stimulated. And mm-hmm. in this particular sector, you know very well, if you want to be up to date, you need to invest a lot of money. So it was almost automatic at that period of my life to move into the private sector. And in that particular period, the sector of digital forensics and uh, uh, breach investigations at that time, it was mostly log analysis and the network traffic analysis was a very early stage. So it was very interesting for me also to be involved in the scientific community and uh, start working very actively. Uh, You probably remember uh, 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 the onion routers uh, mm-hmm. movement that it happened now uh, people started to talk about it uh, between 2010 and 2013 uh, mostly as a you know as a media to uh, uh, increment the the privacy of the communication but actually the onion routing is uh, something that has been created by the US military around the 1996 I think and mm-hmm. uh, then it has been declassified and my first research that I published was on a scientific uh, uh, um, conference and was about uh, investigating the onion routers uh, and uh, the creep, the onion router traffic. So at that period was almost uh, uh, automatic. And a lot of people coming from uh, uh, law enforcement and, uh, and uh, let's say also intelligence agencies moved into the private sector. Uh, still, I have uh, uh, some senior manager in my company that uh, uh, had the same path of myself uh, living in the U.S. So it was a pre- pretty common trend, if I may say so. 
Well, yeah. And can you give for our listeners who might not be familiar with the term onion router, can you give them just a very brief uh, level or description of what you mean by that, how it's different from a regular router? So you imagine, uh, uh, you know, the the main problem that is still there uh, uh, was and is still uh uh, being guaranteed of uh, you know privacy and security uh, of communications between uh, authorized people, uh, so at that time uh, uh, intercepting and hijacking a communication was I would say much easier than now. Mm-hmm. So the need for privacy in particular type of communication at the network level needed a technical improvement able to guarantee uh, basically three things, the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of the communication. And I will also say the anonymity of the communications. So at that time, the Onion routers were actually uh, a set of uh, a software programs able to encapsulate and anonymize the the communications, uh, any type of communications over the network, so from email uh, and uh, anything that was passing through it, uh, in a way that uh, uh, it was almost impossible to intercept. And again, at that time, so you can imagine a chain of routers all over the world, part of a circuit, that basically wipe the data once the data has been received and transmitted to the next uh, uh, ring of the chain. So it it was almost impossible uh, to intercept uh, uh, such data. And from an investigator standpoint, uh, one of the major alerts was that uh, organized crime and terrorists uh, since the software then has been released, the open source will be able to use it uh, uh, without being uh, intercepted or catched. Uh, just to give you some example about how, mm-hmm. how Onion routers have been used uh, in the past five years, Onion routers, uh, modified versions of Onion routers, have been used by uh, terrorists when they were uploading videos of executions or uh, using the same media in order to hide their communication and guarantee, let's say, privacy over uh, uh, their data inter-exchange. So, uh, uh, as a as a software. It has been created for good purposes, but then the Mm -hmm. the dual use unfortunately prevailed. Yes, yes. And, you know, when you're describing that, I think of all that I'm seeing in the news reports, how a lot of times politicians make statements that, you know, they might not be as technically aware or savvy. So when they hear about, oh, well, there's these onion routers and it makes it impossible to know – you know, who's doing what, so we can't really say that Russia is trying to get into the U.S. or whatever. I think it's also important, though, to say that organizations like yours are providing services because while that is definitely making it very hard and protecting privacy and data, you and uh, your team that's where you come in because through uh, digital forensics and through your investigation, that's where you can pick up digital pieces of the puzzle to help to um, you know sort out where it might be coming from and, and what people are doing, correct? I mean, what do you see as um, some of the misconceptions that people have 
similar to these where they think, oh, it's impossible to tell who's doing what at any point in time? Uh, the, the, the term that you've used, so puzzle, is probably the best description. Uh, scientifically speaking, uh, the correlation between events and even the most little piece of data that come out during an investigation as probably are probably very important to collect and then again to correlate each other. It is not true that uh, the communication are uh, uh, fully impossible uh, to intercept and or and hacking is almost impossible to reconstruct. Actually, uh, the current uh, methodologies and technologies and techniques of uh, digital investigations are uh, instead uh, uh, demonstrating the opposite. Uh, the real deal here is, is that uh, there are uh, there are a group of people, digital investigators and security people and breach investigators uh, that are creating, uh, let's say, a network of good people that speak each other and correlate event and then they are able to reconstruct even very sophisticated attack. And the, these are basically the people that at the end are able to attribute uh, the origin of a particular hack to a nation rather than another, to a hacking group rather than another. Uh, I would say not because we are part of that community. I would say that this is probably one of the most important pieces of the cybersecurity ecosystem. Incident response uh, and digital investigators are very important. Shouldn't uh, uh, be confused by sci-fi or CSI mm -hmm. kind of things. Uh, uh, their role is, I would say, also socially very important nowadays. Oh, yes, yes. Well, this uh, we're coming up on a, a time for a quick break, but I definitely want to continue this conversation when we come back because it brings up so many other important um, topics that we need to discuss based upon what's going on today and the claims that are being made and so on. So um, right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors we are speaking with Dario Forte today, CEO and founder of DF Labs at dflabs.com, and also find him on Twitter at dflabs. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as provide show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my websites, Simbus360.com privacyprofessor.org, and my LinkedIn site. Please stay with us. We're going to be right back to continue this discussion. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold & Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. 
Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. We are speaking today with Dario Forte, CEO of DF Labs, about network and data security incidents and privacy breaches. Now, before the break, Dario and I were discussing what uh, breaches you know, can tell you despite maybe them trying to use such things as onion routers for uh, covering up their tracks. Of course, the onion routers, as he explained, are, are very important, and that concept is important for protecting personal information, but it can also be misused. So Dario is discussing what he's seeing with regard to incident and uh, breach um, activities, the use of encryption, and also how to put together those pieces of the puzzle that his team does so well at in order to identify what's really going on and who's doing what. So, Dario, when you're working on these different incidents and trying to put those pieces of the puzzle together, what trends are you seeing with um, the incidents as they are evolving and how they are trying to, let's say, use different technologies to hide their tracks and then the fact that you and um, other experts in this area can use your tools to put those puzzle pieces together to really see who who is uh, doing the different types of activities and track them down with some good, solid evidence that it is uh, coming from certain locations and uh, endpoints. Uh, there are uh, basically three trends that we are uh, seeing uh, uh, in this period. The first one, I will define it as a crowd hacking, uh, where basically uh, uh, different groups of people that may also know each other or may not, they work for a particular amount of time on the same target and then they share the results and uh, let's say the payback and then then they resell 
the, their portion to other organization for other uh, goals. That happens usually uh, when a uh, uh, group of uh, personal data, especially medical data or health-related data, are stolen from database. And then, unfortunately, a, uh, a chain of uh, uh, resellers is activated in the dark web to resell these kind of data that are very interesting and important for them. The second, uh, the second trend that we are assisting is the uh, differentiation and the parallel methods of attacks that are used at the same time, uh, creating one main result, unfortunately, which is the complexity of the incident. Uh, that is actually impacting on the, the uh, on the target owner in two ways. Uh, there are uh, there, there is a growing amount of data that must be investigated before reaching uh, a number of possible investigative hypotheses. And while before it used to be done manually, now is not possible anymore to do that. And uh, uh, the number of investigators, unfortunately, cannot keep uh, uh, the same uh, the same pace of the number of the attackers. The good news is that there are technologies such as the security automation and orchestration technologies, and also the security analytics and response technologies that can automatically aggregate and repeat investigative actions on behalf of humans that are still involved in the loop, but at the same time, those technology act as a first multiplier, probably reducing uh, also an, another important factor, which is the reaction time. And the third is definitely the trans uh, uh, the the cross-border uh, mm, uh, dimension of the attacks. You will never find an attack that is happening in the United States, for example, which is originated only from one country. Mm -hmm. uh, there are more people and more uh, hacking groups that are working in parallel from different countries using stepping stones, of course, that are also attack that are basically attacking a single target. So the investigation is becoming more difficult. And again, what it used to be done manually now needs the, uh, the a series of technologies that can help investigators. And uh, with the increasing uh, uh, usage of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, also on the hacking side, this is becoming even more complex. Well, and you know, your point about not just coming from one country, but you have these groups of, of um, teams, if you will, of the attackers working in conjunction with each other. But you were talking also about how they're, they're um, coordinating their attacks and their different types of exploitations. Are you seeing and finding a lot of the Internet of Things types of devices? I mean, that's, I've always been, or I, an I've been so concerned lately with the Internet of Things and how unsecure they are and medical devices, how unsecure they are. I see those as potential pathways for these different incidents and breaches and really to have some, some pretty severe attacks. Are you running across more um, incidents that have involved those Internet of Things devices? Uh, at the moment, what we are assisting is a growing trend of uh, 
let's say, information gathering from hacker group on IoT and medical devices. So uh, our understanding is that at the moment, uh, uh, the number of incidents is still a little bit contained because the hacking groups are basically collecting data uh, that are sharing uh, and are using in order to model a uh, possible uh, trend of attack. I think that there will be uh, an increase, an escalation of IoT attack in the next 36 months, no, no later than 36 months, uh, because uh, it looks like uh, hackers are not interested in IoT, but actually they are very interested in IoT, but they are in the discovery phase. They are acquiring as much data as they can in order to create a virtual map of potential target that then they can use later on for a more aggressive uh, uh, attack trend. And again, this is probably, you pointed out very, uh, very clearly, this is probably the most important period now for the defender. Uh, because um, when, a, when, let's say, a conventional data breach comes out, uh, you're still on time to investigate and, you know, make something to patch. Make sense? With IoT, the thing is absolutely different because the number of targets that can be involved in a massive IoT attack uh, can make it almost impossible to manage when the problem will come out. So uh, this is why there is a, an increasing uh, number of uh, uh, you know, research activity, M&A activity in the field of IoT security because everybody... Uh, knows that there will be a, a potential explosion of IoT attacks in the next 36 months. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, worry about that often. In fact, I worry about it from a couple of different aspects. So, and one aspect is the, sec the security and availability um, issues. So, it's, you know, if you could go through medical devices and bring down the entire hospital network to prevent care to patients, that that is one big issue that has many parts to it. On the other side, like you mentioned, the, the data itself is so valuable to the, the crooks online, right? So uh, one of the main things, and, and uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, there's only a, a small fraction based on research of breaches, um, a small fraction of personal data that's actually being encrypted. Now, Based upon what you're seeing, are your findings similar to that, you know, or do you think that there's actually more personal data being encrypted now as this other aspect of protecting privacy as opposed to the security part? Uh, what do you see with regard to encryption or are people just uh, not caring anymore? I mean, I kind of get, um, you know, dismayed when I hear people say, ah, oh, your data has already been uh, you know, your data has already been breached, so why worry about it? I don't think that's the right type of attitude to take. I think we still need to do encryption. <laughs> Absolutely not. You're right. I mean, so so what does it mean? So you've been you've been hacking one time, so that that authorizes everybody to do it hundred times. We have no. It's it's absolutely wrong, and uh, you're right when you say that encryption is still uh, not the mainstream. Uh, uh, if you look about, uh, if you think about data at rest, 
probably the the regulations, uh, the HIPAA and other regulation in the United States and the GDPR, the upcoming one in the in uh, in Europe, are probably helping the adoption of the encryption. I don't want to appear too skeptical, but we are still far from uh, uh, the ideal world, so to speak. Um, the number of laptops, for example, that are uh, forgotten in cars and then they are stolen uh, and they are unencrypted is still very high. Many breaches uh, are not actually results of a hack, but they are actually results of, uh, 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 you know, uh, laptop uh, uh, forgotten in hotel or stolen from cars, and uh, uh, those laptops are still not encrypted. So this is uh, still a very important topic to cover. Unfortunately, still many, even at very high level, even at fortune level, there are still companies that are not completely prepared. So the, the best uh, the best expectation here is that uh, uh, the encryption adoption will uh, uh, hopefully increase uh, with uh, with the number uh, of regulations that are asking for it in the next 24 months. Well, and I have to share with you a personal experience just from last night. I mentioned to you I'm traveling on doing client work and at the airport on my uh, plane back uh, home last night, there were actually two uh, U.S. Uh, members of Congress on that flight. And one was doing work on his uh, tablet, you know, while waiting uh, in the the gate area when it came time to board while well, he started talking with folks around him he got up and he went to to board and somebody said oh senator way you forgot your your tablet so right there yeah. to your point he could have left that tablet and i was kind of watching because i thought i can't allow that to happen but somebody did point it out to him but i thought right there would have been a breach with who knows how much data on that tablet uh, from a major senator that somebody could have picked up just because you forgot it in the gate waiting area of an airport. So, um, you know, that's uh, to your point about there's always going to need to be encryption. And, and I want to get to GDPR because I know your organization is doing so many great things with GDPR and the breach and response requirements within it. You know, the U.S. has had many breach laws and regulations since 2002. But of course, we have so many different ones. We have 52 state and uh, territory level breach laws, and we have the federal regulations under HIPAA and um, some others, and then the GDPR goes into effect May 25th, and that requires you to protect data and so on. What are you seeing, because you have a lot of clients throughout the world, so what are you seeing as the main differences uh, between U.S. organizations in, in general and the EU? I mean, you would think because the U.S. has had, since 2002, these growing numbers of requirements for breach response and encryption, that they should have very mature programs by now. I'm not seeing it, but maybe it's different because you're going and helping them with different things. In the EU, this is now becoming more of an explicit requirement. So what are you seeing as differences between those countries? 
Well, respectfully, very respectfully, I don't see compliance reducing uh, the number of breaches in the United States of or anywhere else. Uh, again, very respectfully said, and mm-hmm. uh, um, and that is also due to the fact that many security vendors, including consultancy firms, are uh, overestimating the impact of regulation just to sell technologies and their product. That that is not the current approach that should be taken. But it is uh, absolutely clear that U.S. in terms of adoption of the mindset of uh, cybersecurity protection in general is for some extent ahead of the curve compared with uh, uh, the the United, uh, uh, the European Union. Mm -hmm. Uh, With the adoption of the GDPR, we are assisting anyway, especially at uh, enterprise level, to a quick uh, uh, reduction of the gap because there is a lot of money uh, and business risk associated with uh, any GDPR violation, I will say. So uh, this this gap from a uh, from an enterprise standpoint is going to reduce. An interesting thing is that if you go to the GCC area, which is uh, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Saudi, and mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Uh, they are acting very quickly, probably more quickly than we, that we think, because they have a lot of interest in the European, a lot of investment in the European, in the European part of the world, and they need to comply because many of these of their investments are subject to the GDPR. And uh, I don't know if you are aware of the fact that, especially from the UAE, there are a lot of uh, investment in the healthcare sector. So. Uh, yes. uh, uh, so in the UAE, they are uh, uh, taking the GDPR as a priority because they understand that their investments subject to the GDPR may be at risk. So I think that, uh, you know, I like to be positive. I think that, uh, again, compliance will not resolve social issues, nor technology will do, but uh, uh, compliance associated to a uh, recognizance and understanding of the business risk associated with it will increase the awareness. So uh, I think that the next 24 months will help uh, the adoption and uh, let's say the commoditization of many uh, cybersecurity countermeasures. Will that uh, uh, eliminate uh, uh, the hacking problem? Definitely not. The attack will be even much more sophisticated. So the investment and the cybersecurity process will be a never-ending story, like everyone that works in this field knows very well. Oh, yeah. Well, and to your point, I want to go back and revisit because I, I wholeheartedly agree with you about how if you do compliance um, or uh, regarding compliance, if you're compliant, that doesn't mean you're secure. And based upon the fact that I've seen so many organizations, they, they treat compliance as a checklist. So we've done this. We don't have to worry about it anymore, where they should see it as an integral part of their entire risk management program that needs constant attention. I mean, I've had clients where I go in and I ask them if they have policies, procedures, if they've done, you know, um, any uh, types of testing, like for breach response, when was the last time you tested your plan? Well, it's not uncommon to find that they created the plan, 
but they never tested it, so they don't yeah. really know if it works. So, yeah, they crossed off the that requirement on their list, but then they don't know if it was effective. And I anticipate, because you help so many organizations with incident and breach response, I mean, do you find that that's common as well? Maybe an organization might have what they call a, a breach response or incident response plan, but it just simply doesn't work because, you know, they didn't really create it correctly to begin with. Yeah, and uh, let me use some slang. They just want to tick the box. Time to yes. Time. Uh, uh, th- but there are a couple of good news, if I may if I may add the, uh, this point to, to the discussion. First of all, both uh, consumers and business are understanding the importance of, uh, uh, you know, uh, being, uh, uh, let's say, protected and secured, not just because you need to tick the box, but because uh, this is, is a substantial uh, issue to cover. And so, for example, uh, consumers are reducing their trust in companies that are suffering or they have suffered data breach. So also business are reducing their uh, interest in dealing with companies that are uh, uh, that have uh, low security ratings or they suffered evident data breaches uh, that unfortunately for them came out in the news. I can give you an anecdote from uh, from my business probably. It can be interesting for you. We won a bid uh, uh, some time ago with a pretty big organization. And when you know when you do the bid, part of the due diligence process is uh, uh, passing your company through a credit agency. So you need to share your data with this credit agency for a series of reasons. It is pretty normal practice. Everybody do that. But uh, in that particular uh, uh, occasion, we asked the, the customer to change our, the credit agencies that they wanted us to talk with and share our data because this credit agency, and it is not difficult to understand who they are, has <laughs> been hacked with a big uh, data breach a few weeks before. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the client agreed to do so. So world is changing business. The way to do business is changing from uh, this standpoint. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that... Uh, it will become, uh, you know, mainstream uh, in the next uh, in the next uh, uh, period because uh, trust uh, in doing business, even at the M&A level, uh, the you know the posture of cybersecurity of target and acquirer is being now subject to due diligence very deeply. So we expect uh, definitely that compliance will be uh, substantial, not only formal, in the next periods. Well, and that point is so important, too, about damaging the reputation of the organization, right? If they do get a breach, damaging their brand, a brand value has so much to do with uh, being able to gain the trust of the public so they can become customers and clients. So, you know, based upon... Uh, what you know about the incidents and how they've occurred and and how some organizations continue to have multiple breaches for those out there who are, you know, they're consumers. They're the ones using these businesses that are being breached. So what do you recommend to the general public for how to tell if their business can be trusted with their personal information? What kind of challenges should the public be 
making to businesses to say that they want them to prevent breaches and, and how can they, you know, look to see if they actually have proper um, protections in place uh, and how can they hold them accountable? Any, you know, thoughts about those issues for the public? Uh, a couple of uh, a couple of things here. First of all, uh, don't trust advertisement. When a <laughs> provider says that they are the most secure in the world, then the, the bad luck comes in. So uh, don't trust advertisement and uh, try to verify uh, what uh, what your provider is claiming. Uh, the good news is that there is a, a growing uh, number of uh, security rating. Uh, uh, business that are providing general, uh, let's say, rating for free also for the consumers. So uh, uh, consumers can, uh, uh, and even small business, and even business in general, they can verify uh, the security uh, ranking of uh, the business uh, that they are going to do business with. Uh, and uh, you don't need to spend money for that. There are a pretty good amount of, uh, uh, you know, free data available. Uh, the second point, and unfortunately, it's it's bad to say, but uh, don't be afraid to sue somebody if your mm-hmm. if your data have been breached. Right. Don't agree to settlement by default. Uh, usually, uh, big companies that have been breached try to give you five thousand dollars in order to buy your silence. Your data are absolutely more valuable than $5,000, which is an average for settlement. So uh, it's always bad to do somebody else. So shouldn't be done by default, but uh, uh, class actions and uh, lawsuit could probably be a good deterrent uh, that should be used uh, time to time. And the number of them is growing, my understanding, especially in the United States. Yes, definitely. Well, you know, I'm sorry to say that we're heading towards the end of our our hour, and it went by so quickly. Um, I'm going to have to have you back on again, if you would, uh, to talk at another time, because I still have a lot of topics I didn't get to that I want to discuss with you. But uh, thank you so much, Dario, for being on the show and for providing our listeners with great insights. Thank you, Rebecca. It has been a big pleasure for me to be here. Well, I'll look forward uh, to having you on again sometime uh, in the coming months. So today we've been chatting with Dario Forte, CEO of DF Labs. Find out more about DF Labs at their website, dflabs.com, and look for them on Twitter at DF Labs. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. I'm pursuing my goal to help all businesses and the general public to be more aware of security and privacy risks and issues and also how to mitigate those risks and better protect privacy. I hope you tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled time, you'll be able to listen to the recordings. Also, contact me for information, security, privacy, and compliance keynotes, providing classes, And for more information about my Symbus360.com security and privacy cloud services, you can also visit my YouTube channel, Privacy Professor, to see my appearances on CW Iowa Live morning shows and also see the topics we discuss there each month. I urge you to stay uh, aware of security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities 
go to your job and do your daily work or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. You can contact me with questions, comments, and provide me, please, with your show topic ideas using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Also, visit my sites again, Simmons360.com, privacyprofessor.org. And please be privacy safe in the week ahead. Until next time, goodbye and have a secure online experience. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.